Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. (laughs) He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. Today, it is a smaller group. It's Ian, Dwight, and myself. And with that, we'll jump right into the content like normal. And Ian, you had an article talking about kind of the changes in the financial services industry um, from Michael Kitsis. And I think it talks about you know more of a broader change and shift in the industry. You want to share a little bit about that and we'll discuss, kick it around? Yeah, so... As next-gen director for my local chapter, I spend a lot of time thinking about how the profession is changing, not just for us, you know, the people who already own our own firms and how things are going, but how the profession is changing for the next wave, right? And so a couple of the articles that Kitsis talked about on his recent weekend reading for financial planners were focusing on the subject I think we could take a few minutes to talk about, which is the change away from... um, from variable compensation models to salary plus bonus models going forward for a lot of, you know, new and existing financial planners at larger firms. And I think that that's a really, really positive change for a lot of reasons. It allows for specialization within firms. It allows for planners to not have to, you know, take this huge risk coming out of college on can they build their own practice, basically. There's, there's a lot of good things. So I, I guess to start off with, what do you guys think about the shift in industry and professional compensation? So as most, if you're following this podcast, uh, most you probably know, you know, I come from the accounting and tax world, the CPA world, and that's kind of been the case forever. Um, you know, when I was in public accounting, it was salary plus bonus based on where you were at in terms of um, you know, if you're an associate, a senior associate, tax manager, each person had their own different, or I guess each job title had their own um, quality metrics or, you know, things that they were having to reach. And so I think, you know, it's good to see this profession move towards a profession and, and move towards those types of things other than just sales and marketing and business development, which of course is important of any business needs to find clients and customers and or else you're going to go out of business and can't give any good advice if you're not in business. But um, it probably shouldn't be everybody's main focus. So I think it's going to be a much more inclusive uh, type of profession, which is great. I completely agree, Dwight. That's uh, something that's so important because for at least, again, where I started in the wirehouse world, which I wish we could have more conversations directly around uh, one specific company, but to make sure I keep myself out of trouble, I won't. Um, it's all about business development and it's really hard for anyone in that model to think about having someone support the team without directly bringing in revenue. I think it's lost a little bit about how to run a business. And a lot of these, 
advisors that are either small, one or two, they don't really get the idea of building a business. They think they're business owners. And to me that they really aren't their W2 employees. If you look at their tax returns, they're not business owners. It's hard to, to spend money when your compensation, they just want to maximize what they're able to take home and not build a, an entity that has enterprise value long-term and where the profession is moving is into legitimate businesses. So there's, you know, registered investment advisory businesses where people are doing things that are specific to financial advice and not just product sales, which is still unfortunately such a big part of the industry and it doesn't need to be that way. And if anyone's listened to this podcast at length at all, you know where we stand on a lot of these topics. Yeah, I also think, you know, going back to my point on specialization, I think it's going to be important for a lot of new planners to not have to go under the gun as soon as they come out of school. You know, when you're honing your skills and you're trying to develop yourself as a good professional, um, the past model has been that you were just going to make mistakes with clients, right? Like it, it, it was bad for the clients and it was bad for the for the advisor because both people were under a lot of or well, the advisor was under a ton of pressure. They knew they were messing up. They knew they didn't know anything and they were having to learn it on the fly. And that's that's a very stressful way to operate. So instead, if you're, you know, at part of a larger practice and you get to come in and have somebody looking over your work um, and you have different goals beyond you know, meet 30 new people this year and bring them all into the business like that. That's going to be a lot less pressure for somebody, which will allow them to focus on things like getting a CFP, allow them to focus on things like developing their skill set within the client service realm. And all of those things are really important and things that are unfortunately missing from a lot of areas of our profession. Um, so I'm really excited about it. And, you know, before the call, we were talking about different models. So I'll throw one out there that I think is awesome. That'll be opened up by the salary plus bonus type of compensation model, which is this idea that, you know, one of the biggest benefits to financial planning firms of getting clients is that clients don't go away the next year, right? A lot of clients are retained. So that's what allows our businesses to scale so well. That's what allows us to be able to work with larger groups of people and not have to remarket every year. And so as a result, there's going to be a position that gets carved out in larger firms that's going to be fo focused specifically on client service and is probably going to have a retention bonus, which I think is really cool because that means that we have an entire individual whose job is to be able to give the best advice and then also to serve clients in a timely and meaningful manner to reduce the amount of attrition in the current firm's you know, clients. And I think that that'll be awesome because it'll increase customer service at a lot of these larger firms by huge magnitudes if that does come to pass. You know, imagine hit surpassing the retention goal and retaining 98% of the firm's clients in one year or 100%. Like that would be insane for the firm, right? But we currently don't really have any models that incentivize that. So cool. I guess let's move on to tweet of the week. Uh, that was a really fun topic. Um, so my tweet of the week this week, which, you know, random.org selected me, so I guess I'll go. It's been a while <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> is is by Sonia Dresler, um, or Dresler. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, and I'm sure she would grill me if she saw me in person. But she tweeted out, please contribute to my GoFundMe so I can build a deluxe bridge to welcome all my new trolls. And then she had some pictures of some really awful comments that were either DM'd to her on Twitter or emailed, which we really won't give those comments the light of day. Just 
you know, know that they were pretty much just there to egg her along and, and to take shots at her. So to start off with, this is obviously in relation to the Ken Fisher incident of the last of the last week. Um, so Isaiah, why don't you give us a recap on that before we dive into this current tweet? Yeah, I mean, for most people, they might not know who Ken Fisher is, but he hates annuities. And for anyone within the financial services industry, they'll they'll know and see his cheesy commercials. He also advertises a lot about the other guys and Fisher Investments. It's a massive, massive uh, registered investment advisor that has their philosophy around money management. It's a very high sales culture. He's built a huge, giant firm. He's a multi-multi-billionaire. He spoke at a recent conference, and apparently this isn't the first time that he's made comments like this. But basically, he's a dirty old white man that doesn't know that you can't say certain things ever. Like, it's never been appropriate, not even in the 50s, is talking like this, but talking about genitalia, talking about um, women in ways that are not appropriate to an audience that is full of advisors of both genders. It's just completely inappropriate. Um, I wouldn't even call it locker room talk. It's it's 2019. You can't say this stuff. And he then issued a kind of a, a half-ass apology, which is not appropriate either. And then once he started seeing some more issues in this blowing up and getting on CNBC and Bloomberg and, and all over the place, then he issued a more real apology. I will say, and it's not really even half of 1% of what the assets they manage, but the state of Michigan, bravo, Ooh. they pulled $600 million yep. from Ken Fisher's firm. I think that will be the beginning of more of that because A, you know, you can't be that type of person in today's environment. There's too many other really good sound quality people that will certainly step up and do it the right way. But yeah, without getting into the exact details, which aren't, you know, very nice, but that way uh, he made some pretty nasty comments. Yeah. So Sonia and well, Alex Chalakian first, but Sonia Drazler was one of three people who are at the conference who confirmed what his remarks were and kind of made the story a reality as opposed to just a he said she said sort of thing which is often the problem with closed door events right somebody speaks out and says that this thing happened and it's really bad and then somebody says no it didn't and then there's there's not really confirmation but point is Sonia's catching a lot of flack for her um it, for her participation in this and thankfully equally if if not as much more support but what i kind of wanted to call out is that in, in in modern internet culture it seems to be a really big thing if you disagree with somebody's posts that you need to get your word in and for a lot of people if they feel like they're in the minority of it they send a dm that says something like you'll never be successful because you said this awful thing when really Sonia was just speaking out for something she believed in. So I, I, I just wanted to point out that, you know, Sonia did a good job confirming this stuff and that it's really never okay to be an internet troll. I, I, I don't know. So that's my tweet of the week. That's my hot take. Don't be an internet troll. It's actually a terrible thing. I mean, if you disagree with someone, I want to be rude and disrespectful, at least uh, put it out where everyone can see it and, and don't be a coward. That would be my you know claim to that is if you're going to go out and call someone out, a, you can do it a lot more professionally, but B, there's no ground in this particular situation to stand on. So I just find it rather funny that someone would DM and say some nasty things to, to Sonia when there's absolutely no basis for that. It's not even you know a controversial stance or opinion. It's just the right way. There's right and wrong, and she gets what's right, and Ken Fisher uh, is going about things the wrong way and finally got called out for doing some stuff that shouldn't be done. And I guess... You know, we'll see how this all shakes out. I mean, like you said, the state of Michigan moved $600 million. I just looked up their ADV. 
Now Michigan's Fisher Investments, and they have just shy of $100 billion or something like that under management, like $94 billion. So this is like about half, 0.6% of what they manage. So quite frankly, $600 million is a whole heck of a lot of money, but it's sort of a drop in the bucket. And I think it's just going to be more of a, a PR nightmare for them. But we'll kind of see if, uh, you know, I guess if people are going to vote with their dollars and, and move um, and see what, you know, kind of see how that happens. My my inclination would be that the way that the modern investing public seems to respond to uh, negative press within the financial profession, it's less that they move away from their advisors that they trust. Because rec- remember, like Ken Fisher is at the head of a giant company of which there are a lot of individual advisors theoretically taking care of their clients in a one-on-one setting, right? So like this guy makes awful remarks and as a result, you know, they're not dealing directly with Ken Fisher. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to up and move right away. But the trade-off with that is that much like uh, Wells Fargo, after they had such a big blow up around their account opening scandals, I feel like it's going to be a lot harder for Fisher Investments to, they're going to have a new question to answer basically at every yep. every conversation with somebody who's aware of this, right? Which is, well, how do you feel about your CEO saying horrible things at a conference? And <laughs> now that advisor is going to have to answer that question. Much like, you know, after, um, after the Wells Fargo issue, there were a lot of advisors at Wells Fargo who are saying, you know, it's really hard for us to pick up clients right now because people don't trust our parents. Yeah, no company. kidding. It's like, oh, geez. So I don't know that they'll lose as much as I would think they should off of a PR nightmare like this, but they might not grow as much as they were going to as a result. And if we're being honest, most people aren't even going to know he said it that are watching the TV, that are getting the mailers, that are seeing all the stuff. But I think those institutional clients like the state of Michigan, those bigger chunks, it's not going to be the person that has a million dollars with Fishers that's going to get up and move, nor does that make any difference. It's going to have to be those sizable big accounts that move. And yeah, I would love to see a, a lot larger chunk than half of 1%. Let's you know see them lose 10 or 20% and then see if there's some legitimate change in, in um, you know, remorse in what he said. Because I think right now it's more of a CYA than anything else. Yeah, for sure. Well, the, then you're not sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, and that's... Like, you know what I mean? Totally like, agree. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. Well, hopefully this can be part of a larger cultural change within our profession to actually treating people like they matter, regardless of their qualities. Um, so anyway, I guess let's, let's go ahead and uh, move on to... Our final topic, unless you guys have more you want to say about Ken Fisher. <laughs> no, I'll jump in with uh, kind of the last topic, which is one that we chatted quite a bit about um, before we recorded. And I think it's worth mentioning. So Forbes just dropped their best in state next gen advisor list. And I have an issue with it. And it's not because I wasn't on the list. I don't ever expect to get on these lists. That's not really my intent or goal. But um, the article's methodology states that since we are recommending advisors to the public, we have to make sure every advisor is high quality and can provide impact. That's what really, I guess, bothered me the most. And so I took my home state of Indiana and did a little due diligence and research. And basically the methodology of how they select these advisors, and there was 18 in the state of Indiana, is all around revenue produced, experience, assets under management, compliance records, in-person interviews, 
and those that encompass the highest standards of the best practices, whatever that means. I, I don't really know what that last piece is. It says it's a quantitative method, but that seems very qualitative. But I just wanted to open it up and, and see what you guys' thoughts are on this list. But before I do, so out of the 18 advisors, four had CFPs. Uh, one was the an ind- one worked for an independent firm. The rest were all broker dealers, and there was only one that wasn't duly registered as an advisor and broker. So I have a hard time and struggle with saying these are the best in-state next-gen advisors, knowing that in the state of Indiana there's some awesome, awesome kick-ass advisors that would be far better than some of the names on the list. And uh, I know a handful of the people on the list. And I think they're really good salespeople. I don't know from a quality in providing impact from an advisory relationship that they necessarily fit the bill. So really my um, approach here is just look at these awards and make sure you understand what they mean. And yeah, it's flashy and cool to put on your website or business card that you're on these lists, but what does it actually stand for and what does it mean? Yeah, I, I have two issues with the list. Um, the, the first is that I actually had this conversation with my father-in-law at our FPA symposium locally last last week, and you never know what's going on in somebody's practice, right? On the outside, everybody looks like they're shining and golden and everything, because that's the image we have to project. But you never know what the internals of somebody's practice are. So first step, like calling anything best X type of advisor is, is a little bit, I don't know, a, a little bit too much for me as a result, because there's no way that these people are like observing these advisors for, you know, five hours of an actual workday. And even if they were, those advisors would probably change what goes on in their workday because they would know they were being observed, right? It's really hard to know what an advisor actually does. The second thing is that there's like the actual list is just a list of managed assets, basically. Like if you look at the actual article on on the list, the three criteria that are listed, uh, none of them are about the quality of the advisor. They're about the minimum account size, the team assets custodied, and the typical size of household accounts. And, and, and so that's fine because, but that's not talking about how good the advisors are. That's talking about how good they are as salespeople and how large their practice is, right? So... I just take issue with a lot of the terminology used in this and and going back to our previous conversation about how compensation models are changing and and how practices are changing, I I would largely believe that this is a little bit of a relic article that goes back to the days when, you know, what was thought of as good was getting the sales trophy, right? Not having a meaningful conversation with a client that changed their life. That's the way that this article comes across to me. It's like selling is really good. That makes you a good advisor. It's like, I'm not so sure that's true. So even though I don't know about all the criteria and all the selection processes that they went through with this, doesn't really seem like it's about evaluating the best advisor to me. I think he just goes back to like, what's the best advisor for you? I mean, I'm not going to be a perfect fit for probably a lot of people. Um, and I would imagine the same for you two guys as well. Um, but so I, I do, I think, you know, I agree. It's, it's good press. It gets people, it's notoriety. It's, you know, Hey, this is this third party looking at this. Yeah, it's, I agree. It's just not probably the best metrics to be benchmarking somebody. I think, um, was it NAPFA has got a pretty good list, right. Of like questions you should, you know, five, eight questions or 10 questions you should ask your advisor. 
and some of it has to do around compensation models and some of it has to do around like, who do you typically work with and, and things like that. So, I mean, for example, all three of us are members of XY planning network. And so there's, you know, we have experience working with folks in that demographic, if you will, whereas, you know, there's other folks that all they do is work with retirees. So that might not be a great fit, um, depending on which camp you're working in. So, um, just one example. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, say that anyone's a bad person for on this list or they do a terrible job. I just know there's several firms that are listed that have had a lot of issues and right. the structure of the, the model that they're compensated in is very antiquated. It's broken. It's old. So how can that be a best in state when I know that there's really good advisors at other firms that weren't on this list? That's where I have the issue with it, where, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to understand how these selections are made. Is there a pay to play? Is there these other things that are out there? I don't know. But it seems very strange that, you know, wirehouses and big broker dealers are the, really the only ones Absolutely. listed outside of one person. There's no fee only people in this list. None of the fee only people in the state of Indiana are any good to, to be listed on this. And especially if we're talking about next gen, I'm not talking about current, but going into the future where the industry is changing. These are not the people that are changing the industry. These are people, uh, part of the old guard that work in that model that are just younger. So yeah, I obviously am very passionate about uh, the state of quality financial advice and these articles and this list is not doing it. So I think it's it's pretty worthless, but it's great for those that get listed. They can throw it on their marketing material and, and hopefully go get some more AUM. Yeah, look at me. I've done 300 million of assets under management. Don't you want to be my 301st million? Especially if you inherit it from your parent, which is uh, the case on a couple of these, which is interesting as well. Because there's no, I mean, you could buy a business. You could buy a billion dollar business and be on this list because it's literally about assets under management. It has nothing to do with the skill of that person. Yeah. Well, we can can keep trashing the Mm -hmm. Forbes article or we can wrap up for the week with some closing thoughts. What do you guys think? I just think I'm excited where the industry is moving to, even though, you know, we just got through the Forbes article. I think there's a lot of good pieces out there that are highlighting the changes and the adjustments that are out there. XY planning network is certainly one that's trying to do the right thing. NAPFA fee only network. There's a lot of individuals, a lot of advisors that are extremely high quality that are out there wanting to do things the right way. And I think it's our job and this podcast job is to continue to spread the word of there are good advisors and it shouldn't be, you know, the stereotype of the trust level being between that congressperson and used car salesman, which I think for so long that reputation has been earned and it shouldn't have to be that way. Yeah, I agree. I, I also think it's time for, um, and here's my soapbox moment. I think it's time for everybody in our profession to actually take a stand that we aren't going to in any way make other people uncomfortable at conferences. Um, this is not the first conference I've heard of this year and I've actually been at one where incidents have taken place. So let's just make sure that we are promoting an environment where everybody's happy and enjoying the conference or whatever event you happen to be at. There's no reason to make other people uncomfortable. It's not funny. All right, well, thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week. 
Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.